You're listening to Right Between the Eyes, the Bellingen Readers and Writers Festival podcast, where each episode we sit down with an outstanding festival guest to talk about their life, their work, the deepest, darkest secrets they'd intended to take to the grave. It's all on the table. You'll also hear a special musical feature from one of the region's most exciting performers. And if that wasn't enough, we cap things off with an author reading from yet another standout festival guest. It's a cavalcade of words for your ears, all on Right Between the Eyes. In what was to have been a clear festival highlight, Media Watch host Paul Barry was due to sit down with human rights champion Julian Burnside, along with former senator and leader of the Greens, Bob Brown. While the pandemic put paid to what would have been an incredible conversation, we're delighted to welcome Dr. Bob Brown to the podcast today to not only reflect on his time in politics, but also his childhood growing up right here in Belgium. It's a stirring and entertaining discussion of the health of planet Earth and of the political inaction on halting irreversible damage to our natural world. Complementing our interview with Bob Brown is a remarkable and sobering reading from journalist Paddy Manning, who shares with us the epilogue of his latest release, Body Count, How Climate Change is Killing Us. We're also showcasing the latest release from indie rock local Titan Sky, the song Acorns, What to Do When the Sky is Falling. Suffice to say, it's an unbelievable episode, and we're thrilled to be able to share it with you now. So without further ado, let's venture down to a tranquil corner of Tasmania to visit with the eco-warrior himself. Now today, I'm very pleased to welcome to the show Dr. Bob Brown. Bob, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure, Adam. Uh, now, I'm sure this is something that's likely been remarked to you quite a bit of late, but of all the places one would squirrel away during a global pandemic, I imagine a Tasmanian wilderness hideaway would be a fairly ideal place to spend some time. So how, is, how has the pandemic impacted you? Uh, well, it's, it's uh, saved me from doing a lot of travel, which is a good thing, mm. although I miss not being in Bellingen, of course. But uh, the end of air travel and a lot of car travel has been great um, being at home more time to think more time to enjoy uh, life with a good companion and a, and a beautiful setting in far south tasmania mm. and i'm particularly enjoying the winter but waiting for a bit more snow to come on to the world heritage mountains which uh, you can see from paul's farm his, his first lamb has arrived uh, a bit early due to an early um, escape ram, but uh, <laughs> life's good, and a lot of things that I couldn't do before, I'm catching up with. I brought, I've just brought out a little book called Four Days on Isla, which is an island off the west coast of Scotland, which has got eight whiskey distilleries. So uh, it it not only is a little bit like Tasmania physically, but uh, in the production of whiskey. And Paul and I spent four days there back in 2015 and I had the camera out and a little booklet has uh, come as a result of that. Now, I wouldn't have been engaged in such a foible if it hadn't been for the virus and more time at home. Mm. No, I only just saw um, um, yesterday, in fact, that you had the, the new book out uh, because I have here in my, my hot little hands Planet Earth, uh, which is 
something that we'll touch on in this conversation, which is full of your your insights and observations. Uh, but given that you do have a bit of a history here, I thought it would be interesting to touch on that, albeit briefly, given that I read a, a quite a recent Guardian profile of, of Bellinge in the town, and it saw one one long-term resident reflect that, I'm surprised how straight it's become. People wear clothes now, which I thought was splendid. Um, and you know, many, many of the, many of the authors who would have been here this year would have been visiting Bellingen and surrounds for quite some time. But your family has roots here and in Coffs, and uh, even your co-founder of Bush Heritage Australia, Judy Henderson, grew up on a nearby dairy farm. So several ties to the land. What do you recall of the of the political and environmental scene that existed back here then? Well. Um it was yet to be transformed by the, uh, the big changes of the 60s and 70s. So my father moved the family to Bellingen from Armadale in the mid-50s. And um, we, my brother and I, older brother and I, went by bus and train to Coffs Harbour High School, which was which is now the Jetty High School, uh, my sister went off to the new Bellingen High School. My younger brother went to the Bellingen Primary School opposite the post office, uh, as it was in those days. But it was a, a quiet town of 1,400 people, a lot of dairy farms and sawmilling. And um, I think one of the biggest events of the time was Worth Circus or Ashton Circus coming to the riverside and, and an elephant escaping and take fences out for some, <laughs> some miles upriver. Uh, and, of course, the swimming hole down at the island was on the northern side of the island back in those days. It was a little bridge about, and it was 14 feet down through crystal clear water to touch the bottom. So on those hot summer days, we were down at the island swimming hole uh, more often than the knot it was just uh, you had to watch the bull for the bull routes of course make sure you didn't put your foot on one of those yeah a lot of a lot of great times by the river it's a it's a vivid memory that you you paint there and i suppose just to touch on history a little bit further uh because while the australian greens were formed in 1992 you were already involved in green activism and politics for decades there notably with the united tasmania group uh, but jump to jump to 2010, where we see the largest overall vote success for the Greens uh, with 13.1 or 13.2%. But from there, we see it slip for the subsequent two elections and only managed to get back into double digits at last year's 2019 federal election. And this is despite more global media attention addressing climate change and environmental degradation than at any other point in history. So at the touch of sounding elegiac, you have a perspective now that stretches decades across cultural and political, technological divides. Why isn't the science and concern for the future translating into votes? Very, very important question because... uh we see a lot of criticism of the politicians, and President Trump is a good example of that, but he's there because people voted for him. And uh, indeed, in 19, 
1933, Hitler was there because people voted for him. And the there's an incredible myopia in the human species, and we we just uh, we're just part of our own origins, where our immediate safety and security and getting of goods, being uh, uh, not least food and shelter, have been important to us all the way down the line. But uh, we've evolved also to have in our human species this fine intellect, and it allows us, unlike most of our fellow creatures, to look forward and plan ahead. And so we're now in this great dilemma between the onrush to disaster through climate change and species extinction. We're in the sixth great extinction of life on planet, but this time we know the causal factor is it's us, and we know the only cure for it is us taking action. But as yet, we aren't taking the concerted global action that is required if we're going to ensure the maintenance of human life and indeed all life, this, this magnificent web of life, on this one and only little planet so far as we know in the universe, which uh, has uh, life, love, laughter, and of course this ability to reflect and change. So it's a, it's a very big dilemma. And if we don't use our intellect, and that comes down in democracies at least to voting, uh, but we vote for the old instinct for me now, for the wallet, the money, for more goods, over our intellectual ability to see that we are cheating the future, our own kids. And the latest news coming in on climate change is, is disastrous mm. this century. The kids who were my age at Bellingen now, are going to see a transformed world because of our inactivity now. But it begins at the ballot box, Adam, and that, that's a challenge for everybody. And people who, and just last year, 2019, 90% of Australians, that 90% that, that, that didn't vote Green, voted for more coal mines, more gas extraction, uh, oil wells in the Great Australian Bight, and of course, broad-scale logging of forests and woodlands, which accelerates rather than holds back against climate change because forests are a great carbon bank, mm. and also accelerates the mass extinction. Now, I have people say to me, oh, yes, but I, I didn't vote for extinctions and climate change. And my answer is, well, if you voted for Pauline Hanson or you voted for Labor or you voted for Liberal, yes, you did. Mm. Uh, that's that's how it is. If you don't give the priority to the future of the planet, if we don't overcome our own instinctive greed, and, you know, as Gandhi said, the world's got enough for everybody's need but not for everybody's greed, then you have to take and accept fair and square the responsibility for that vote. But... Um, there you are. It's a, and we are a global community now. We're 8 billion people consuming 170% of the Earth's living resources. That's two planets worth at the moment. That's why every day we wake up, there's fewer fisheries, there's fewer forests, there's more extinct animals, there's less arable land, there's more mouths to feed. But there's this enormous inertia because it does require us to pull our belts in. 
Mm. And it does require us to see other people as equal. And things that uh, instinctively intrude on our comfort zone. So there's the question. Mm. Uh, how can, are we able to get outside our comfort zone in the interests of the greatest goal of all humanity, which is to continue on this delightful planet the joyride into the future? And that's very much in question at the moment. I want to draw that to an observation you make in Planet Earth. Uh, it also ties into, on the first episode of this podcast series, I spoke with John Marsden about just his observations on what the greatest threat to Australia might be. And he spoke of inaction on climate change. And he floated the notion that short of installing some authoritarian regime, that perhaps the human world needed to be forced to do the right thing. And you, you make a point early on in the book, uh, and I quote, there are good global laws to protect Earth's biosphere, but no global green police contingent to enforce those laws, end quote. Without having a whip at our back, do you worry that the only way people will commit to sustainable change is when that freedom to be apathetic is removed, when we're forced to act for a greener good? Well, look, again, it comes back to democracy. And um, I'm just writing a treatment for a, an ad for uh, my foundation uh, to promote the very sensible idea that we should end native forest logging in Australia. After all, New Zealand did that 20 years ago. And we've got enough plantations in Australia to meet all our timber needs. But the, the question is, with 70 or 80% of people in favour of ending native forest logging, why is it continuing? Mm. And there you have the power of corporate interests. The National Forest Industry Association has a big glasshouse opposite Parliament House, as does the mining industry, as does the food industry, etc., down there in Canberra. And I know from 16 years in the Senate, Adam, that uh, those lobbyists are in there at the coffee house and knocking on doors. And the wider populace and that public interest is simply not met, is no counterbalance to that vested interest lobbying. Now, that could be reformed, but uh, there's an inertia in, in incumbent politicians to reform it because they're comfortable as it is. So the 70 or 80 percent loses out to the 30% and continues paying millions of dollars of subsidies to destroy forests, which is releasing carbon in massive amounts into the atmosphere in an age where the United Nations says, well, the quickest, simplest way to hedge against climate change is to stop logging forests. And Australia is one of the wealthiest countries in the world, can most easily do that, but doesn't. And I'm afraid they're a part of democracy, and I went to the High Court, to test this against new laws punishing active environmentalists in Tasmania a few years back, and the High Court upheld it. But part of our responsible democracy, a representative democracy, is the right to freedom of protest. And besides our vote, we actually need to be uh, taking part in the protest against those factors, the coal mining, the Adani mine, for example, uh, but not only. The destruction of the Lear forests and woodlands out of Narrabri by um, what's now a huge open-cut 
mine and many citizens got arrested out there, but the rest of the public went on to vote for more coal mines. Mm. And we're really, but young, young people are seeing this. And the, I mean, if there's one, when I was in Billingen, uh, we, back in the 50s, it was the dawn of the age of flower power and, and the so-called hippies revolution, but a real change in social and environmental awareness with, for example, women's liberation, and then came the freedom rides, which have been, uh, have helped, but have fallen a long way short of giving First Australians the status that they should have and are so badly deprived of in Australia in 2020. However, there was a revolution in the air and it came from young people. And there's very strong signs of that at the moment globally. And when you've got millions of young people out on the streets protesting against climate change and an ineffective Prime Minister in our own country saying, oh, they all should be at school, rather than mm. taking note of what they're protesting about and and a Prime Minister who brings coal into Parliament and says, look, it won't hurt you. Mm. You know, we're still caught in a last-century time war from that Prime Minister through to the President of the most powerful countries on Earth, both uh, the United States and China, and India, for that matter. Uh, but there is a very, very strong movement because people are aware that their, their future is being robbed of them and they're not going to stand for it. And if there isn't action in the political circle to put the lobbyists in their place and to go back to your question, to bring in laws which are for the common good, that's what parliaments are about, is passing laws so that society can be robust and safe and secure. And uh, at the moment, we've got governments undoing environmental laws rather than not just enhancing them, but enforcing them. And it came to my mind back when I was supporting the Sea Shepherds efforts to stop Japanese whaling in our whale sanctuary south of Australia, those great whales which are currently swimming up the coast of uh, New South Wales and indeed the whole of eastern and western Australia, were being skewered by harpoons with grenade-tipped explosive devices and dying in agony. And we had laws against that, but Japan was breaking that law and, and nothing was done about it. But when Sea Shepherd went down to uphold those laws and the laws of nature, there was condemnation, not just uh, in politics, but in the media in Australia. Well, their action, fortunately, did force the government's hand. It did force a world court decision and ultimately led to Japan leaving. And it, was, it showed that if there is some form of policing, you'll get a change in behaviour. But unless you have the laws and the policing, and it should come from representative democracy, then the public interest is undermined by the power of corporate and vested interests. Mm. This ties into a question that I I had very much from my perspective as a, an armchair political observer. I mean, but it seems like there's there's always going to be some overlap in principles between the three major party voters, like there are environmentally engaged folk who will still be voting liberal, and I'm sure there are green voters out there who may also support the more conservative nationalistic oh, that's right. policies. Yeah, um, absolutely. 
which I guess sort of leaves Labour as the most ideologically similar party to the Greens. Not at all identical, but I guess the closest. But Labour's going to be disavowing the Greens at each contested seat at each election so that they can hold their position. So I suppose my question really is this. You look at the United States where we have this two-party system that's developed across hundreds of years. Has the has the Liberal and Labour Party of Australia simply been around long enough that they've become entrenched and a, a third party can't just compete but needs to needs to break one of them apart to become competitive. Well, that really is up again to the voters. Is the fact there that the environment is still uh, down the list of considerations, and um, it's not until we get to understand that ecology, the management of knowledge of the household, is understraps the economy. It's not the other way around. Uh, and to paraphrase Bill Clinton, it's the environment, stupid. <laughs> that's what's important, uh, that uh, we uh, get the long-term future, well, we salvage the long-term future from where it's going at the moment. But look, let's go back to the established old parties, wherever they might be, and this, this applies in dictatorships as well. The power of materialism, the corporate sector, the vested interests, the big money has bought out our governance around the planet. And it's not until the government controls the marketplace rather than the reverse, which is how it is at the moment, uh, that the planet will get into a, a human management which is sustainable. Uh, and that's natural. You know, corporations are based on making profit. That is the charge that boardrooms have. But at the moment, we've got this warp system in Australia where some uh, corporations are ahead of government, both the big parties, Labor and Liberal, and of course the National Party, in uh, wanting to take action on, on climate change. Uh, what an extraordinary situation uh, and what a dereliction of responsibility for the future. But it does take leadership. It's not just responding to the public priorities in terms of governance that leaders are required to have. They need to also take a lead in assuring the public that the way ahead is in tackling the great environmental scourges of the age, climate change, mass extinction. And uh, this relates across to social justice, but this growing gap between rich and poor, which is simply unsustainable, it's a prescription for future revolution, mm. both within countries and between countries. Adam, and Australia is one of the wealthiest countries on the planet, ought to be independent and setting a world lead in uh, holding out a hand to other countries in our neighbourhood, if not, not beyond. But we're not. I'll never forget 2014 when Tony Abbott promised to cut foreign aid by $4 billion to build uh, more roads in Australia. And, and the vote in the run to the election went up on the basis of that. And I thought, and, you know, Tim Casella came out and did a quick backup envelope estimate that this would cost, cost some hundreds of thousands of infant lives overseas. But here we are, a very selfish 
nation because we don't have the leadership, which explains why it would be better for all of us, including our souls. We're not just uh, physical beings. We're spiritual beings as well. If we were to live by the rule book of, of the pre-materialist age, which we're still unto others as you'd have them do unto yourself, materialism's thrown that, all that out. And we've got this great contradiction of people in power who subscribe to Christianity but ignore its basic tenets, that being one of them, of course, and cross to the other side of the road and leave people lying in, in agony in the gutter. Well, uh, you know, that, that just needs... I'm, I'm a humanist. I, t I take the view that we human beings inherently know that being good towards each other and fair to each other and to the planet on which we live is the only long-term sustainable way for human happiness to flourish. Mm. And we have to talk about that a lot more, but I think we will see out of this young generation leaders, and it's great to see countries like Finland with the four leaders of the the parliament, uh, parliamentary parties, including the Prime Minister and the leader of the Greens, all women in their 30s. I think that's a great pointer to how the world is headed into better, better territory, better brain territory, if you like, at a time of urgent need. It's interesting that you touched on that kind of idea of, I suppose, voter understanding. Because to, I mean, just to quickly dip back into the Planet Earth book, there's a section there on oceans where you write, the once endless, unfathomable seas are being poisoned by our disposable way of living, end quote. I mean, given the existence of the Great Pacific Garbage Patch, I think the sentiment there is hard to dispute. But I, I wanted to draw focus on the word unfathomable because it struck me that because it's such a difficult breadth of of seriousness and responsibility for people to get their head around, can it be that people just look at this and think, well, the problem is so big, it's so convoluted and so ingrained now that there is no action I can take? Yeah, no, that's a cop-out. We, we, uh, and, and, and by the way, it's a prescription for depression. That's why the motto of our foundation is don't get depressed, get active. Uh, but again, we can manage our, our oceans much better. The fact that this nation, I mean, as a Green, my fellow Tasmanian Green MP, Di Hollister, had a bill in the Parliament for deposit recycling legislation in Tasmania in 1989, and we still don't have it. And I, I set up a Senate inquiry into recycling plastics back in the early part of this century, and uh, it was all going very well until Woolworths and Coles marched into the inquiry and said, this is going to cost us jobs and it'll add points something or a, a percent to the uh, cost of, of goods at the checkout. And the rest of the Senate, most of the rest of the Senate inquirers just rolled their eyes and said, well, what can we do? Even though we'd had in Irish supermarket supremos saying, well, we've got rid of use of plastic bags and um, it's been great, the actual experience, and that's been the experience everywhere. But that power of corporations moving in based on money and profit, overriding uh, politicians that should have more sense, 
but are a little afraid to go out in the public arena and front up to those corporations is an insidious factor in preventing there being much greater action. Now, it's over to the citizens. And I keep coming back to one thing you can do is change your vote, but another thing you can do is get this behind, even when it seems too difficult. And people are very busy. That's, that's understood. Get behind tithe. That is, put a proportion of income into those activists in, for social justice, for spreading Australian largesse to the rest of the planet, and for protecting our environment. There's good, look, look to the groups which are taking action. That's what's so important. And sometimes that action is outside the current suite of laws. But you know, there's a very robust line of thought right back through humanity, which says that when the law is wrong, it needs to be stood up to. And that, that ultimately is something that is for our own judgment. I know uh, the Tasmanian government currently has through the lower house and it's headed to the upper house new laws, which mean that if you go peaceably into a forest a second time and stand in front of a life-filled ancient tree to stop it being chopped down and sent as wood chips to some furnace overseas, you can face four years in jail. Now, there's a question for every citizen. Where do you stand or sit in that situation? No, well put, Bob. Uh, I know we don't have a, a huge amount of time that we can actually steal from you today, but you you did touch then on on leadership, and Julia Gillard was on Q and A just the other night, and one of the things that she mentioned was how on day two of being prime minister, she was being asked about her fashion, and she spoke of you know, a lot of abuse that was thrown her way, her treatment by the media, and I suppose every political leader is inviting themselves to scrutiny. But I think it's also fairly clear that the standards and conversations of our public figures aren't consistent, that your gender or sexuality is something that you can be raked over the coals for. I mean, suffice to say, it's a fight and it's not always a clean fight. But despite all of that, do you miss it? Do you miss the leadership? Uh, Well, I saw Julia on that Q&A and like her... it's uh, it's a great privilege being in there, and I've just put a tweet out today because I stood up against that misogyny and the vilification on the basis of sexuality that the Prime Minister was enduring uh, some nine months before she gave that great speech, the speech on misogyny. Mm. But that said, no, I think I, I, I just did right to leave when I did, and for other people to come in and and uh, take the place of somebody who'd been there for 16 years. I'm still, I've I've set up this uh, foundation to fight for the environment and it's going great guns. And we uh, are a very active lot and uh, they're threatening to take away our our tax-deductible donations and so on. I've got a sign on the wall there saying that the forests are more important than our furniture, Mm. Adam. Mm. But... uh, Uh, But life's good, and Paul and I have taken this time to uh, do a little bit more travelling to some of the the beautiful places in Tasmania. I'll be seeing the Premier of Tasmania in a few days' time, and there's a particular coup, a forest uh, he wants to log in southern Tasmania, which is big, uh, is just spectacular, 
it should be a lookout instead. And um, the Aboriginal people of South East Tasmania should be involved in that. So I'll be pr- promoting that to him when I see him. And the Tarkine, of course. We've got a big campaign for the biggest temperate rainforest in Australia, northwest Tasmania. It's being logged and they want to mine it and so on. But these things other people can't come back and undo. So even at the age of 75, I'm enjoying life immensely. I'm very privileged to know that in this country we all are, most of us are. Some are in, uh, still in uh, circumstances which Australia should be ashamed to allow them to be in. And I think that we've all got this great opportunity, but I'll go back again to those bright-eyed young people I see stepping onto the moving footway of life, and it gives me great uh, hope that this revolution in thinking and in mindset to giving the future the importance that it should have and not just being concerned about our this me now presence, which is the bane of human existence on the planet, I, I think they're going to change things and um, I'm all strength. And if I can be a little bit of a, a mentor in doing that, well, I can tell you, old Bob's happy. <laughs> it's a, I think it's a, a splendid sentiment and it's something that I think is at the core of, of the Planet Earth book, that it is a bit of an, an ode to the future. Uh, my, my partner is uh, an environmental scientist and she was full of questions for you, but in the end, she thought the best question for you would be, what is your greatest hope? And I thought perhaps as a, a rather fitting final question for you, that could suit quite well. If all of your life and work can be distilled to one hope, what would you have that be? Well, of course, it's the hope that human life will not only go on, but be happy into the interminable future. And therefore, they, I can distill that back to the hope that this lucky, wealthy, country we have, besides coming to a, a much better arrangement with First Australians, as a middle, very powerful entity on this planet takes the lead in a century that greatly needs it, to uh, a lead in getting the world into a frame of social justice and environmental well-being to end the extinction crisis, to put the cap on climate change as we can do and to have everybody's needs met so that their opportunity in life can be fulfilled as well. Now, that's not a pipe dream. That's the alternative reality to this headlong rush to climate destruction and and the fear of some scientists that the population at the end of this century will be 1 billion, not 10 billion. That is a very stark prospect facing us, mm. and we will only get around that if we turn the hope that this planet can do better than that into the action that will fulfil that hope. I think living on Earth is unutterably engaging and magnificent. It's a very precious thing, and we Australians are more powerful person to person than almost anybody else on the planet. So I, I say Australians can rise to being this independent but formative voice for global governance as well as everything else because all people, all 8 billion of us are in the same boat. We sink or swim together. 
Mm. And I think we can make it. So come on, Aussie, come on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dr. Brown, it's good to think of you down there still fighting the good fight. It was a shame that we couldn't get you up here in person, but we do appreciate you taking the time to chat to us for the podcast today. And hopefully we will, once all of the COVID dust settles, entice you back to Bellingen once again. Oh, thank you, Adam, and to your good partner. It's been a delight talking with you, and I really look forward to any excuse to go back to Bellingen is a good one. (laughs) Well, we'll hold you to it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. While it may not be quite the same as seeing him in conversation with Julian Burnside and Paul Barry, hearing Dr. Brown's thoughts on political agency, on hope and conservation, and the wonderful image of escaped elephants blundering around town, well, I hope you enjoyed it. Before we continue this foray into climate emergencies with a reading from Paddy Manning, it's time for a lesson in physics. Acorns. What to Do When the Sky is Falling is the latest song from singer-songwriter Titan Sky. And aside from its catchy guitar hooks and vocals, it's a raw reflection on dealing with mental unrest. Ladies and gentlemen, Titan Sky. Batten down the hatches, draw your sails, drop the anchor and brace yourself. Rain clouds coming over the hill, steal all the color from the world. And I hear the sky.
That was Acorns, What to Do When the Sky is Falling, the title of which was indeed inspired by the histrionic children's classic Henny Penny. Uh, you can check out Titan Sky's music on SoundCloud, Triple J Unearthed, all of the usual musical haunts. We were very excited to announce respected journalist Paddy Manning as a festival guest this year, not only because of the timeliness of his 2019 book, Inside the Greens, but it did seem fitting for the challenges 2020 seemed to be moving towards at the time. Oh, COVID, how little we knew. As it transpired, he already had another book in the works. Body Count, How Climate Change is Killing Us, is arguably one of the most vital books you will read this year. It's not only an investigation of what the future has in store, but a compassionate and unflinching portrait of lives that climate change has already impacted and, indeed, has already claimed. We're very proud to share this extract from Body Count with you now. Hi, I'm Paddy Manning and this is a reading from my new book, Body Count, How Climate Change is Killing Us, published by Simon & Schuster and available everywhere, hopefully. It's from the epilogue. The 2020 coronavirus outbreak swept Australia's black summer off the front page, back page and every page in between. From late February, when Prime Minister Scott Morrison pre-empted the World Health Organisation and declared a pandemic, there was blanket rolling coverage for months. Other news barely got a look in. Even the April opening of the Bushfires Royal Commission was passed over. Council assisting the Commission, Dominique Hogan-Doran SC, noted wearily that her staff had identified over 240 previous inquiries and reviews into natural disasters in the country, and, quote, we detect a worrying consistency in the themes explored and repetitiveness in the recommendations made. Soon, however, a sprinkling of media reports joined the dots between worsening climate change and a growing risk of outbreaks like coronavirus. Both are caused by the same fundamental problems, deforestation, urbanisation, overpopulation and overconsumption. Intact ecosystems play an important disease regulation role, and a recent scientific paper argued there's growing evidence that the emergence of new infections is caused by environmental changes, including, quote, a dramatic increase in human appropriation of natural resources to keep pace with rapid population growth, dietary shifts towards higher consumption of animal products, and higher demand for energy. Viewed this way, according to Monash University Professor Tony Capon, who is Chair of Planetary Health in the School of Public Health and Preventative Medicine, both climate change and pandemics like COVID-19 are symptoms of an unsustainable way of living. At the societal level, we're over-consuming, Capon says. Although clearly there are some people on Earth who still don't have enough material resources, including food to live well, there are at least as many people who are consuming too much. The challenge is to redress that balance. The Anthropocene, the new geological epoch in which humans dominate and shape the planet, is fast becoming an age of pandemics. As David Quarman, author of Spillover, Animal Infections and the Next Human, wrote in the New York Times, quote, We know from the fossil record, by absence of evidence, that no large-bodied animal has ever been nearly so abundant as humans are now let alone so effective at arrogating resources. 
and one consequence of that abundance, that power, and the consequent ecological disturbances is increasing viral exchanges, first from animal to human, then from human to human, sometimes on a pandemic scale. We invade tropical forests and other wild landscapes which harbour so many species of animals and plants, and within those creatures, so many unknown viruses. We cut the trees, we kill the animals or cage them and send them to markets. We disrupt ecosystems and we shake viruses loose from their natural hosts. When that happens, we need a new host. Often, we are it. The origin of the novel coronavirus causing COVID-19 is not yet certain, but it's widely believed to have come from a species of bat sold in a wet market, a market where animals are slaughtered for human consumption, in the Chinese city of Wuhan. It's often said the pandemic came from nowhere, a kind of black swan event, but that's not true. Like the black summer itself, the latest coronavirus outbreak was foreseeable and foreseen. In early 2018, at a World Health Organization meeting in Geneva, leading disease ecologist Peter Daszak and a group of experts coined the term Disease X to describe the next global pandemic which they predicted would result from a virus spilling over from animals, emerging somewhere on the planet where economic development drives people and wildlife together, and would spread through human travel and trade networks silently and rapidly, like the flu, but with a higher mortality rate. It was prescient. Looking back in early 2020, Dashak wrote in the New York Times that COVID-19 was indeed disease X. Such spillovers were increasing exponentially, he wrote, as our ecological footprint brings us closer to wildlife in remote areas and the wildlife trade brings these animals into urban centres. Unprecedented road building, deforestation, land clearing and agricultural development, as well as globalised travel and trade, make us supremely susceptible to pathogens like coronaviruses. Dashak had been warning of the next pandemic since 2003 and wrote that instead of waiting for new diseases to emerge and hoping for a vaccine, the world needed to get on the front foot. Quote, to escape from the age of pandemics, we'll need to treat them as a public health issue and start working on prevention in addition to responses. End quote. There have always been pandemics, the bubonic plague in the 14th century which lowered Europe's population by a third. The smallpox introduced by the British colonists which devastated Aboriginal communities in Australia as it had done to other Indigenous peoples around the world. The Spanish influenza outbreak a century ago which killed millions in 1918-1919. In the mid-20th century, the spread of vaccination and antibiotics gave doctors hope that most infectious diseases could be eradicated or controlled and non-communicable diseases assumed greater importance, particularly diabetes, heart disease, cancer and chronic lung diseases. We thought in developed countries we had mastery over infectious diseases, says Roe McFarlane, Assistant Professor in Ecological Public Health at the University of Canberra. Until probably the 1980s, when HIV AIDS appeared, she continues, as we look back, we see a spike in new infectious diseases from about the 1970s, now coming predominantly from livestock and wildlife. Since that time, global rates of deforestation have accelerated, populations of wild animals have declined by more than half, and the biomass of wild mammals is now only about 2% of the total. The rest is humans and livestock. This is our new ecology and virus mixing pot.
So what's causing the new age of pandemics? In an article published in The Conversation, Capon, McFarlane and Fiona Armstrong from the Climate and Health Alliance together wrote that COVID-19 was indeed a wake-up call. The pandemic and climate crises were deeply connected and the root cause of both was our war on nature. Calling for post-COVID policy responses in Australia to end that war, they quoted Silent Spring author Rachel Carson. A war on nature is ultimately a war against ourselves, she wrote. It's no coincidence that all three, Tony Capon, Roe McFarlane and Fiona Armstrong, had studied under the late ANU professor Tony McMichael, the public health pioneer whose life and work has been an undercurrent of my book. The very concept of planetary health, which holds that the health of human populations depends on the health of our planet's life support systems, is a nod to his 1993 book, Planetary Overload. The first of three books, Planetary Overload focused on five major environmental problems and how they could impede human health. Climate change, ozone depletion, land degradation and impairment of food production, loss of biodiversity and burgeoning cities. In one article, looking back over more than 10,000 years, McMichael studied the possible climatic links to previous pandemics such as the Black Death and collapses of ancient civilizations from the Sumerians to the Mayans. Previous collapses were more likely to be driven by cooling than warming, McMichael found, and historical evidence of climatic influences on infectious disease epidemics was less strong than for hunger and undernutrition. But this was no guide to a future which would be three to four degrees hotter, a level unprecedented throughout the Holocene, the period of study back to the last Ice Age. Identifying the nutrition-infection linkage, McMichael wrote that the greatest recurring health risk over past millennia has been from impaired food yields, mostly due to drying and droughts, sometimes lasting decades to centuries. We moderns, wrote McMichael, have not yet been tested. And he continued, The fact that drought has been the dominant historical cause of hunger, starvation and consequent death casts an ominous shadow over this coming century, for which climate modelling consistently projects an increase in the range, frequency and intensity of droughts. In a warmer future world, the range, rates and seasonal duration of many infectious diseases is likely to increase, because bacteria at higher temperatures and vector organisms, brackets, mosquitoes, fleas, etc., multiply faster, up to a temperature limit that threatens survival. Infections and infestations will also increase, pose increased risks to agriculture. This research was a teaser for McMichael's third book, but tragically he died in September 2014 before he could finish it at the age of 72. Posthumous publication of the book, titled Climate Change and the Health of Nations, was managed by his partner of 45 years, ANU social scientist Dr Judith Healy. Judith says Tony was still working full blast when he died. He still had a lot of very important work that he was desperately keen to do, she says, because he knew that he had a limited time, but he also knew that this was a coming crisis that people weren't paying enough attention to. Tony had polycystic kidney disease, Judith explains, and he'd had a kidney transplant back in 2004. Quote, he was immune suppressed, but of course he didn't let that stop him, she says. He just kept going around the world as usual. Tony was in Darwin during naval exercises in 2014 
when sailors from around Asia and the Pacific were in town. Though he'd had his flu shot, Tony picked up a strain which wasn't covered by the vaccine. In his immune-suppressed state, it was very difficult for him to fight off, Judith says. He died here in Canberra. Australia is good at public health, from setting up modern maternal and childcare during the Depression to the introduction of compulsory seatbelts, banning fireworks, tightening gun laws or mandating plain packaging of cigarettes. Tackling the health effects of climate change remains a glaring omission. Tony McMichael, who was given an Order of Australia in 2007, was a world leader in that tradition. His key insight, says Judith, was that climate change wasn't going to just affect bees and butterflies and polar bears, it was actually going to affect humans and was a catastrophic threat that was looming ever closer for humankind, and perhaps even an existential threat to our survival. Influenza is itself a zoonosis, and Judith sees the bitter irony in her husband's death. Tony was vulnerable, she says, and he couldn't fight off influenza, and influenza's coming around more frequently these days. So does she believe there's a body count from climate change? Judith pauses before answering clearly, yes, I think there is a body count, and Tony was trying to quantify that in his later years. Does Tony's death mean that he himself is part of the body count? Yes, she says, his death was premature and caused by influenza and its complications. Judith says Tony was never one for doom and gloom, despite the grim theme of his life's work. He remained active on the boards of government commissions and non-government think tanks like the Australia Institute and the Climate Institute. He tried to stay optimistic, although it was a bit of a battle, she says. As Australia and the rest of the world fight to contain a pandemic of just the sort he anticipated and feared, it's perhaps fitting that the last word should go to McMichael himself. Quote, it's likely to be an extraordinary century and we're going to have our wits about us to get through it. And so our third episode comes to a close. My sincere thanks to Dr. Bob Brown, Paddy Manning and Titan Sky for sharing their time and talents with us. On the next episode, we're continuing the highlight reel with none other than barrister, human rights and refugee advocate, not to mention author, Julian Burnside QC. Until then, thanks for joining us on Right Between the Eyes. And whatever you're reading right now, well, go ahead. Read it twice. Rain clouds coming over the hill, still all a colour from the world.